Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm a feminist, but when another feminist saw that I hadn't shaved my legs and said, isn't it great to be free of that kind of patriarchal bullshit? I said, yeah, and didn't tell her I'd missed my appointment for a wax and had just made another one. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but when I meet an ultra-practical, handy woman... I often assume she's gay. (laughs) So okay for you to say that. That's the only only reason. I was still scared writing it down. It's one of the main advantages of being a lesbian is that you can say that. I can say that. What are the other other advantages? I am quite handy. (laughs) So it just works out. I'm a feminist... But the main reason I don't wear stockings and suspenders every day is they're too difficult to do up. I mean, they're just inconvenient, but I do have sort of madmen fantasies of walking around with them under my dress. I think it would make me feel super sexy. But they're a faff. They're just a faff, and they don't stay around the back. And they're, oh. I don't think I've ever worn them. Well. I mean, there's still time. Well, later this evening. I've got Maybe several pairs back at mine. Have you? Mm. Um, I'm a feminist, but when I meet an ultra-practical handy woman and she's not gay, I'm often a bit disappointed. (laughs) Not for any sex reason, just tribal. Oh, I see that. I'm a feminist, but I was more upset about Bake Off leaving the BBC than I would be about Woman's Hour going to Dave. (laughs) 
Fry from King's Place in London. The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with Deborah Francis White and guest co-host Carrie Quinlan. And special guest Rubes J. Walsh, Reverend Kate Harford, and Leila Hussein talking about minefields. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Guilty Feminists, have you had a wonderful Guilty Feminist week? Yes. yes, great. Has your week been more guilty or more feminist? Just shout guilty or feminist. One, two, three. Guilty! Literally one there's feminist. A couple, yeah, there's one feminist somewhere in there going, uh, Feminist? Oh, no, I meant still? guilty. I meant guilty. Guilty, um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, Carrie, have you had a hello, hello. Guilty Feminist week? Um, I've been camping. Oh. Which is both feminist and guilty. Why? What's the guilty bit? Couldn't always be bothered in the middle of the night to go to the camp toilet and weed in the forest. I think peeing in the forest... Which is also quite feminist. So yeah. don't oppress me with your toilets, patriarchy. That's absolutely right. Tonight we're doing two episodes. One called Minefields. I love you people. And one called Faith. Oh, that that was last. a slightly different yeah, yeah. mood. That's brilliant. Um, now, both of these subjects are frankly terrifying. They are subjects where feminists massively disagree. There's lots of heated debate on the internet. And if you get minefields is, you know, the things that you might get wrong, the things that you might say incorrectly, the things that might spark an argument or a fight. And if any of you engage in feminism on Twitter, <laughs> it's oh, a frightening gosh. place. And sometimes people get very angry. Uh, so we've assembled a panel that we're very excited about to really get into these subjects. I'm not sure I'm ready. I organised this episode months ago before I realised this day would come. Oh, totally. You are, yeah, you asked me if I'd co-host it about five months yeah, ago. Yeah, literally and five, I, said, I went, yeah. we'll, we'll put it five months in the future and that won't happen. Yeah. Now, I made that assumption because Trump had just got into the White House and I thought, we'll be all over by then. Yeah, we'll, we'll be but, dead. But, we'll all be dead. But when I get to feminist heaven, she will say... I see you've programmed in a very progressive, interesting, and brave couple of shows here. Well done. Go to the top suite where Maya Angelou and Emmeline Pankhurst <laughs> have just made you a bubble bath that you can have with all the other fun feminists uh, who've just died also in the apocalypse. See, I knew this day would come from five months ago when you first asked me to do it. I knew this day would come, and so... When you said, would you co-host a Guilty Feminist about minefields? I went, yeah, absolutely. And for the last five months, I've been going, what is wrong with you, mouth? Why? It's true. Uh, so it's been, you know, interesting. Yeah. I got here early and I had a cup of tea upstairs and I was going to buy a chocolate bar and they had lion bars. And I vaguely remember, although I may have got it mixed up with Yorkie, now mm. I say this. It's it was Yorkie. Yorkie wasn't, oh, I'm really sorry, Lion Bar people. I didn't buy a Lion Bar <laughs> because I got you mixed up against... with Yorkies. <gasps> Did you misgender yeah. a Lion Bar? I misgendered a Lion Bar. I felt wrongly oppressed by a lion and I rejected it out of hand when I've realised now it was, it was Yorkie Bars that... Possibly for, it was maned and you recognised that as a male symbol and you... Like, if it had mane, it's a... It's a yeah, that'll be it. Probably. Do you want to introduce me? And I'll go to the mic. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Shall I do yeah. that? Yeah. Cool. Please welcome to the microphone, Deborah Francis-White! 
So tonight, I want to talk about minefields. The reason we're doing this episode is because sometimes I find myself in the corner of dark bars and darker parts of the internet with other feminists going, but you're not allowed to say that. No, don't, you shouldn't say that. Well, are we allowed to say that? I don't think we should say that. I don't know, but I'm not sure I feel that. Well, it doesn't matter if you feel it, just don't fucking say it. (laughs) And I don't know how many feminists, women I've had who've said, I'll say this to you, but I wouldn't say it on your podcast. And it honestly, it's not a terrible thing that they're saying. It's not an unempathetic thing that they're saying, but it's a nuance that is out of step with contemporary feminist thinking. I met somebody because she tweeted me about the show and she said, the language that you've used is not correct. And I said, okay, well, could you be somebody who, if we use this kind of incorrect language about gender or sexuality, if you see it, could you please flag it up and tell us? Because I'm really happy to change language because I want this show to be as inclusive as possible. And so I started talking to this person and we ended up going for a vegetarian lunch. It was a sort of a vegetarian, vegan lunch. It's the place where you assume you can meet people off the internet to talk about non-binary subjects. It's a safe... It's a safe space. It's a safe space. So this person is an academic. She's non-binary and she is a Christian. And so in one person, I was able to have all of the conversations I'd ever wanted to have. Uh, and uh, okay, so here's this is this is the kind of thing. This is the kind of thing. This is the kind of minefield. Okay, when Transparent came out, Jeffrey Tambor was cast as the transgender father-slash-mother of the family. Uh, It was written by a woman whose father came out as transgender, and so it was written from her experience, from the experience of the family. And I felt it was a very powerful program because I thought what they'd done is they'd cast... America's uncle, Jeffrey Tambor. We know him from other shows. Uh, We know him from Arrested Development. Uh, We know him from the Larry Sanders show. And he's a sort of old manny type avuncular. He's your dad, basically. He's America's dad. And I thought it was really important that they'd cast him. Do you know why? Because then I can relate to thinking, oh, what if my dad wanted to transition? I thought that was super important. Some people in the transgender community and the community of transgender allies felt very angry that Jeffrey Tambor had been cast because they said that role should have gone to a transgender woman. And the same about the Danish girl with Eddie Redmayne. They said that role should have gone to a transgender woman. And the conversation I've had with other feminists who are extremely keen for transgender people to appear on the television as a matter of course went like this. Okay, but... I do see that people are very angry about that and it's not okay for me to say on Twitter because I'm not transgender, it's not okay for me to say, but I feel that Jeffrey Tambor is America's dad and that's the point of the show, then surely that's a good choice. And surely if the Danish girl's not going to get made without Eddie Redmayne, then it's important that a transgender story is being told. The fact that transgender stories are being told now is amazing. And that surely is the first step towards it being common to see transgender actors cast as transgender people and then transgender actors cast as cisgendered people. And Rube said to me, yes, that's probably true. It's probably true that this is an important step in the evolution of transgender people appearing in the media more often and being cast in shows but it's still okay for people to be angry about it now. 
And the fact that people are angry about it now is the only thing that will bring change tomorrow. Because I realized when she said that to me, I just went, oh yeah. If we all go, well done on casting Jeffrey Tambor, good choice, Jeffrey Tambor, we love Jeffrey Tambor. Awards, throw awards at Jeffrey Tambor. Well done, well done. The transgender community is grateful and thanks you. Then what's Hollywood going to do? What are the TV networks going to do? They're going to go, well done us. Who else can we hire? Is Steve Martin working at the moment? <laughs> They're not going to change. They're not going to change if that's easy box office and there's no cause for change. Now, Jeffrey Tambor recently said, I think in a speech where he did win one of the many awards that were thrown at him, he said it's time for transgender people to be allowed to play their own roles. He said that. So it was an exciting moment for me because Rubes and I got there in about, I would say, six chess moves. It was, what about this? But what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Okay. And I went, I trust Rubes to have this conversation. I don't want to have any more of this conversation without it being recorded. Because, basically, I don't really enjoy conversations that aren't recorded. <laughs> I just find it, it's a waste of time. I mean, often, I'll be having a nice chat with a friend. I'll go, just in case... Should we just pop the old iPhone? It doesn't take any time, does it? It doesn't hurt to record your conversations. I've got Alexa at home. I assume that MI5 are recording everything I say anyway. And if I ever needed the rushes, I could probably just write in and go, I had a fantastic conversation Wednesday afternoon at about 4.20 when a particularly interesting friend of mine came over and we ended up discussing the nuances of feminism uh, and the queer movement before the First World War. Could I please have the tape? Um, so I just thought, I want to have this conversation bravely and out loud because this is the conversation I normally have in the corners of rooms in a whispered way going... I feel like it's important that Jeffrey Tambor did that. And I think that was important. Is it okay to say it? It's not okay to say that because I'm not transgender and I should just go, yes, ally, mm, amplify. But it doesn't... If I just say the right thing but I don't think the right thing because I haven't been taken through that process or if there were two right things... And I know that's a really unusual thing to say now. But if there are two right things, if there are more than one way of thinking about this that is empathetic, that is whole, that is forward-moving, and if we need more than one way of thinking, if we need a pragmatic way of thinking and we need a radical way of thinking, if we need both of those things to get progress, then can we live together? Can we hold hands across the aisle and go, I'll do the bit we need to do now, which is hire Jeffrey Tambor. You do the shouty bit that says that's not good enough. And within three years to five years, it will be normal to see transgender people on the television playing cis roles. I feel tonight's episode is basically a dangerous space. That's what I feel. And I just sort of want to ask you, the audience, if you will go with us. Basically, could you get in my huddle? We had a guest huddle backstage where we all huddled up and said, it's okay to fuck up. We've always got the edit. Now, here's the thing, guys. We don't have the edit with you. So could I ask one thing? That if you tweet about tonight, you don't quote anybody. You don't go, ooh, well, Jane said exactly these words. Because what she said might not be in the edit. And by Jane, I do mean Deborah. And by Deborah, I do mean me. <laughs> there's no Jane. There's no Jane. And I thought, they're not going to... They're going to go, but there's no Jane. And I'm going, oh, who, who are you talking about? Me. Um, I'm going to bravely say stuff and we're going to share it together. We have a minefield buzzer on the table. Should we hit a minefield? Uh, thank you. If, 
Um, we're not going to have challenges tonight. This show is the fucking challenge. Um, so, uh, so just, will you come with us? Yes. So if you could just, maybe we'll do some vows. Um, <laughs> we, the audience of The Guilty Feminist... Do go, do go into the dangerous space, into the dangerous space. Safely. safely, together, together. With, love. with love, empathy, empathy. Sharing. sharing, openness of heart and mind, and a fucking good sense of humour. Amen. Our women. Are you ready to meet our guests? Yeah! Rubes Walsh is a social neuroscientist who specialises in gender expression at the Free University of Amsterdam. Our next guest is Reverend Kate Harford, a minister at the Metropolitan Community Churches, and Leila Hussein, who is a psychotherapist and anti-FGM activist and also a smuggler of vulva cupcakes. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage Rubes, Kate and Leila. <laughs> all of you just to introduce yourself with a personal minefield. So, Rubes, have you had a minefield situation where a minefield's gone off for you? I've been doing some research into, well, as Deborah mentioned, I do stuff about gender identity and gender expression, and one of the really uh, landmark findings in the field around trans people in particular is phantom genitals. So if you've heard of phantom limbs, you can probably work out what phantom genitals are. It's where you have an experience as if you had that organ, but you know it's not there, and it isn't. And so we put together some questionnaires and some implicit measures of different experiences and passed them out to people from actually mostly in the UK, because um, it was with some collaborators in London. And questionnaires get written by... I mean, there's a, a trans-ally validation questionnaire, which I find very annoying, because it's basically <laughs> a questionnaire for cis people to tell themselves how great they are. I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get a badge? No. Do you get a cookie? That's what they give you on the internet if well, you ask for validation. They say, do you want a cookie? Yes. Think, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we all like cookies. Um, sorry, fresh out. Anyway, so we passed these questionnaires around online, of course, and um, my collaborators, bless them, um, thought it would be really sensible, because I was the only trans-identifying person involved in the project to put my name and contact details in case there was any problems. So I got lots of messages saying, this is doing me harm in these ways. And I am not entirely resolved as to how I feel about the whole thing. I think it's a bit like there might be two right things. Because on the one hand, there is a certain academic standard, an expectation that you stick to things that have already been validated by slightly flawed statistical methods, but still. And then, on the flip side, there's needing to know what's going on. So, people said that the questionnaires made them feel like the people asking the questions thought that trans people ought to hate their bodies, and that it made them feel 
dysphoric, which is a word trans people use to describe the feeling of having your gender sort of undermined in some sense. So, yeah, so I fucked up. Did you fuck up, though, or is it a completely valid question to ask? And if people were triggered by that, then they sort of also need to let science happen and go, well, I'm not going to answer that because that's triggering for me. The way, this is my parallel to this, Rubes. Mm. I can't have a baby. I tried to have a baby. I had four years of fertility treatment. I can't have a baby. I've moved on from that now, and that's fine, and I'm not, thank goodness, particularly emotional about it. If there's a pro-choice march on, if I felt too emotional to go to that march, because I don't want to march with people going, oh, I want to choose to terminate. I want the ability to choose to terminate. That's not what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I want the... My, press the buzzer. <laughs> oh, yeah. I want the ability to choose to terminate. It's my body. Or the right, really. The right. The that's true. Buzz again. The right, the right to choose what happens to my body, then I should be able to make that choice. Now, I don't feel emotional about that. I would be happy to go on that march. But if I did, or another woman who couldn't conceive or had miscarried felt too emotional to go on the march, then my opinion is, as a feminist, you need to stay home, not march and not look, but not object to the march happening because your feminist sisters need to march for something that maybe doesn't involve you. Maybe it does make you feel excluded, but it needs to happen. And I feel similarly, that research may be really useful for transgender people down the line, because it makes some transgender people feel emotional now. Does it mean that you, as a non-binary transgender person... <laughs> did I do that well? No buzzer no. went off. Oh, no. oh, 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 that's not fair. You can't buzz. That's not fair. Buzz um, Layla for meanness. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like we should have a buzzer for telling people they can't buzz. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, control. I, control. Yeah, I, um, I feel that future generations of transgender or non-binary people might need your research more than these people need not to feel upset. I could have responded better to the criticism. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> we all? Uh, Leila Hussein, um, you are an anti-FGM activist. Do you have any minefields in your life? Isn't that what happens in my life all the time? I mean, I'm always... I mean, for me, uh, I remember just uh, a couple of months ago, you know, when uh, Jimmy Mandin and Goza made a mm. comment... Because I'm the black woman, so they contacted me, the media, to kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> to speak for like, your oh, people. Lady saying, you know, you know, we know you work on uh, gender and women's genitals. Why are your thoughts on this? And I was like, oh my god, I just came <laughs> yeah. off a nine-hour flight. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to this. But I think for me, I have an experience of constantly being labelled or being told I need to be fitted into a particular box. I know that because I'm constantly told I'm a woman, which I am. You're a Muslim because you've undergone FGM, so it means you might not have experienced any sexual pleasure. That's not true. So this idea that my gender or gender identity is constantly boxed into one place based on an experience that I had of undergoing the practice, I don't know if that kind of fits into this, because this is something I'm still learning about, but it's a conversation that needs to be had amongst everybody, I guess, because I, and, and I'm raising a 14-year-old. Anyone here raising a teenager? Oh, they are so much fun. <laughs> oh, God. I'm really enjoying the fact that she ignores me most of the time. It's brilliant. I get to watch Netflix without being interrupted. And um, it's brilliant. I really love it. And the fact I'm raising this 14-year-old, you know, we do have these conversations. And <laughs> so we talked about sex and sexuality and 
about gender. So one day, I think she, we were at a family dinner. This is a Muslim family, just pointing that out. So she came and said, oh, mum, I think I'm gay. <laughs> and my Muslim mother going, oh, subhanAllah, oh, my God. You know, Layla, you know, the conversation you have with your child. And she wasn't, and she said, you know, do I have to I, I constantly identify my gender because you brought me up to be a human being? And I said, well, that's your choice. At the end of the day, there's a choice that we are talking about here. But it was really interesting, her interpretation of being gay, which was she just didn't like boys. They smelled, and she liked to hang out with girls. <laughs> How old was she? She was nine at the time. So oh. that was her interpretation of it. But for me, going back to maybe... The environment I created for her early on, you know, my child is a bloody alien in her school, poor thing, because she's not really, she's been brought up by me, which means when she goes to school, she is an outsider, because she was saying the word misogynist at the age of seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's parenting. <laughs> yeah, say that to the other parents. <laughs> yeah, so really, I think that's, I know we use the word minefield, but really I am in that space at the moment and I know whenever a black person makes any comment, a black celebrity makes a comment about trans, Leila Hussein gets to call because I work something to do with genitals apparently. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if that... So the fact that you're called because you're anti-FGM when yeah. something comes up about trans issues does really show the broad brush strokes the media working. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really, it's really bizarre, yeah. Kate... Is this the right thing to say? Get ready for the buzzer. Uh, are you the vicar of a queer congregation? Or a queer-inclusive congregation? Actually, queer and queer-inclusive are fine. Vicar is a job title, and it's not my job title. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, so most vicars are parish priests in the Church of England, and I am a chaplain at a university, and I am... I think my job title is clergy on staff. I should really know. Clergy on and, staff? Clergy on that staff. That sounds like a 1970s television show <laughs> about a vicar who solves crimes. <laughs> clergy on staff. Are there, are there Last week on clergy on staff. Are there clergy off staff? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, really? <laughs> I mean, not officially, but there's loads of like, you know, clergy who don't work for my church. So, yeah, technically. Those lazy <laughs> bastards. Oh, um, or, or, are they, or are they just, or are they volunteers? So, actually, they're not lazy at all. No, no, no. Well, I've never seen them. You know. Oh, amateur I, detectives. Also, I just realised I said my church, meaning the church I attend, but in some church circles, that's a massive minefield. If somebody with a collar says my church. Oh, thank you. Big thing. What's okay. your minefield? So I get a huge amount of privilege in all sorts of ways being a priest. Firstly, you can just walk into places because nobody ever wants to stop the vicar. A couple of months ago, I was a vicar on crutches because I use the term vicar because that's how people see me rather than because that's my... Because if you're listening at home, she's wearing a dog collar like the vicar of Dibley. Yeah, and... <laughs> Uh, but she's got pink hair, which is not like the Vicar of Dibley. <laughs> but people call me Dibley in the street. Aww. Somebody walked past me in the street the other day and went, Are you a vicar? Uh, for the sake of argument. Dibley! <laughs> <laughs> I get that from men particularly a lot. And it's an age thing, because obviously I work with students most of the time and they don't know the Vicar of Dibley. So I made a reference the other day and they went... Oh, I like that they check first. Yeah. They, don't, they don't just walk by and go, Dibley! Yeah. They want to be sure. Excuse me, are you a vicar? Yes. Dibley! Dibley, Dibley, Dibley! Dibley, Dibley, do! Lads, 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 lads! Dibley, Dibley, do! Sorry, are you sure you're a vicar? Yeah, great. Oh, oh no, I get, are you sure a lot? So uh, when I first started at work, people would knock on my door and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the chaplain. And I'd say, oh, 
you know, I'm sat at the chaplain's desk in the chaplain's office. Shall we take a wild guess what my job is? <laughs> and, um, and then I'd have to explain that at the time I wasn't ordained, so I was just wearing civvies. But I am a chaplain. I am entitled to be here. You can talk to me. I always assumed, and I may be wrong, that what they meant was, I'm sorry, I was looking for a man. The same thing happens if you're a comedian. <laughs> Come out onto the stage and the audience go, sorry, we were looking for a man. Is that also true? science. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. They're like, I was looking for the scientist. Yeah. yeah. You don't get that because you're yeah. an FGM anti-activist and well. people look at you and go, yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, is that okay to say? You can press the button. No, actually, I think that's mm. okay to say. Mm. Okay, great. Thank God. I know. Um, oh God! Tonight is literally like uh, I was saying the right stuff. Um, and so I'm known for not being PC, but tonight the PC gas is on me. Like it's just I'm really careful. Is I it don't a gas wanna... now? It's gas. Oh, man, it's I'm not insinuating something else. terrified of minefields I'm terrified of tonight I'm, I'm, yeah because you know that's unusual for people those, all those people who love minefields want to marry minefields um, I'm more terrified of conversational minefields than I am of actual minefields um, because you don't generally get actual minefields in West Norwood um, but you do get conversational minefields and I'm partly frightened in the way that people are frightened of heights because they say that if you're frightened of heights, part of it is because if you're in a high place, there's a bit of your lizard brain that wants to jump. And I'm partly frightened of minefields because sometimes I want to step on a minefield for fun. Not often, and not in a terrible way, but, for example, when my dad died a few years ago, we had a memorial service. We're a Catholic family, and it was quite a big memorial service, and there were several priests who were all wearing matching memorially vestments. It was lovely. And afterwards, I was chatting to one of them, and I didn't really know what to say. And so I said, were you all a bit embarrassed that you turned up in the same dress? Uh... <laughs> kind of just to see what would happen. Um, and he was a Jesuit, so, you know, reasonably cool. And it was fine. Totally fine. And so sometimes that happens with my mouth. Um, other times, I'll um, jump up and down on a mine by accident, even though I know it's there, because I, I won't have realised how big it is. So I was at a book launch some years ago, and I had a new boyfriend, because it was a different life. Um, <laughs> and I was at this book launch, and I went to get us a couple of drinks, and I came back, and a friend of mine was talking to him, who hadn't yet met him, and I could tell was flirting. This is not a problem. And a normal person would see, oh, there's potential mine there. I'll just introduce them and we'll skip over the mine and all will be fine. This is what a normal person would do. <laughs> I thought, brilliant, mine. I'll defuse it by pointing it out really loudly. <laughs> and I said... Oh, that's amazing that you're flirting with him because this is my new boyfriend. Now, she didn't know that this was my new boyfriend and he, because he was that kind of chap, didn't notice that she'd been flirting. 
So everyone's horrified. <laughs> I genuinely thought that was the way of diffusing the mine. And it turned out I was jumping up and down hard on this fucking mine. And they were never, ever able to look each other in the eye at any point. But we broke up, it's fine. <laughs> so there's those kinds of mine. And then, and this is the kind of mine that's we're talking about tonight is the mine that I don't even know is there, partly because I'm a privileged white middle-class woman who grew up in the home counties. So I can't, I, can't see, I can't see them. But I do try, I do try my best. I was involved in the Guilty Feminist US election special in November, and I think this is partly why I've been asked to be here tonight. Um, <laughs> I, at one point, referred to the audience as ladies and gentlemen thinking no, absolutely nothing of it, just skipping over that mine. A mine I didn't even know was there, but thankfully the brilliant Avery Edison was there. And she pointed out, rightly and in her immensely gentle way, um, <laughs> <laughs> that there might be non-binary people in the audience. And she, in her immensely gentle way, tore me a new asshole, um, And rightly so. Rightly so. Um, and now I'm worried that the tore me a new asshole is a, is a mine. Is it? Oh, someone just went, yeah. Um, I apologise. Um, but this, this is the thing. This is what I do. And I want to learn. And I think I'm a reasonably decent person, apart from some of the stories I've told. Um, her. Uh, and, I, and I want to learn. And I want to try. And actually... I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. And there was a good 10 minutes where I didn't say anything because I, I just thought, oh God, I'm the worst person in the world. I must not speak. But I think I needed to go through that. And I'm glad she did it. And I'm glad she um, pointed that out because I want to learn. Minds like that are the really tricky minds because if she hadn't said anything, that mind would not have blown me up. But it would have blown someone up or it could have blown someone up. And I don't want that because... I'm nice, um, reasonably. And I think what I want to say is these kinds of minds blow you up if you're trying your best, and we have to allow that. So you have to allow yourself to get blown up, I think, in order to learn, because these minds are going to blow someone up even if it's not you. So do your best, learn, Stand on the mine. Maybe don't jump up and down on it, but stand on the mine and take it if someone tells you you've stepped on the mine. Because that way we'll all learn and we'll all get better. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ooh. So this is my question. When the march happened, some women knitted hats that they called pussy hats that were in the shape of... Genitalia. And I thought they were cats. I, they were not cats. They were, and the comment that I saw a lot on the internet and in some op-ed pieces was that these were trans-exclusionary because a lot of trans women don't have vaginas. And my thought was they were in a direct response to Donald Trump saying pussy-grabbing. Likewise, I've seen pieces saying 
female genital mutilation is trans-exclusionary because not all female genitalia involves a clitoris. Some female genitalia includes a penis and the other things that come with a penis. <laughs> Testicles. Oh, this conversation's getting um, interesting. So, <laughs> my feeling is I want trans... Men and it's, I mean, as soon as I say it, I'm like, oh, privilege, privilege, privilege. I the want... The hand is hovering over the buzzer. My, my feeling home. is that I want feminists to tribe up. So I love it when trans women wear the pussy hat and go, yeah, fuck off our pussies. Even if that trans woman doesn't personally have a vagina, she has a penis. I love it when transgender women go, fuck you, get off our female genitalia. In this case, I'm talking about a clitoris, or I could be talking about a foreskin. But fuck you. And I love it when cis women march with trans women and go, fuck off, don't tell us that our sisters aren't our sisters. And I want feminists to march together and not say, but you're excluding me if you talk about female genital mutilation because I don't have a clitoris. I think female genital mutilation can't just be called genital mutilation because it's a misogynistic act. That's what I want to put on the table. And I really feel I need to say Layla and Rubes... And I love how she's staring at me when she's talking about FGM. I am. FGM. I'm going to say <laughs> Layla and Rubes... Talk about that and reach a conclusion. <laughs> well, actually, I want to I clarify. You know, there is that assumption that women who've undergone FGM don't have clitoris, but the actual clitoris organ is actually still inside. It's still there. Please buzz the buzzer, because I said that it wasn't. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did not so know that. So I'm glad to clarify that first people. when you want the buzzer buzz. <laughs> Sorry, no, I can't buzz myself. It's rude at the table. <laughs> <laughs> Using her privilege. Um, I mean, I mean, I remember reading that statement, and for me, where, where I stand on this, again, it's the idea of being boxed yet again. And for me, one thing I've always believed, anytime any of us are in any struggle, for me, solidarity is what meant more to me than anything. Not whether you had a genital, you didn't have a genital, you didn't have a clitoris or not. If I'm in a battle, I expect you to come and stand beside me and we'll be there together. And if you were struggling, I'm with you because your struggle is my struggle. I know it sounds quite corny to say this, but for me, it's always been that simple. So it wasn't this idea that we focus on. I think sometimes some people are just giving these column inches just to write this stuff, and I, I find it to be a, a time waste. I was at the Women's March. I just chose not to wear the pussy hat. I just didn't go with my outfit for one. <laughs> and as Somalis, the orange colour means a lot to us, the burnt orange. So the fact that an orange man won the elections in America, <laughs> I wanted to reclaim the orange. So that's what I did at the Women's March. So to me, it wasn't really... It just didn't mean anything to me. So for me, solidarity, really, it's where I stand on this. So if you say to an FGM survivor, one will say to you, I mean, I know maybe a quarter of my clitoris is missing... <laughs> What do you say to the one who's all the outer clitoris is missing? So do I say, you know, you can't be part of this? So for me, I really don't like this idea of we focus on whether someone should be at a struggle or not. So solidarity, I think, is the word that I'm looking for. Rubes. Right. Okay, hot take on this. Um, <laughs> I think that female genital mutilation is done based on a perception of someone as female. Well, we are guilty because we were born as females. That's why FGM happened in the first place. Right. Yep. So, 
if it excludes anyone, it's trans masculine people, not trans women. Not that that means it doesn't matter, just that it means I'm less qualified to uh, take a position. But I... Yeah, I mean, okay, there would be better words. There could be better words for it, definitely. It would be better if it was called... I don't know, because there's too many different kinds. No, I think, I think misogynistic genital mutilation. That would be a better way of phrasing it, but the term already exists. And there's a debate, or there has been a debate, it's sort of died now, and I think that's, that's the right thing, within the trans community about the word trans, because it implies mm. that you start somewhere and you end up somewhere else, whereas most trans people feel like, well, first of all, everyone is going on a gender journey from the minute that they start to experience gender till they die, and that's not just trans people, so that's a problematic. And then also because the implication that, you know, that they're sort of born a man as opposed to born a baby thing. So the word trans is or has been criticised as not the best word to describe the thing mm. on grounds of trans inclusion. My feeling is that the term FGM is, I don't find it exclusionary. The pussy hats, on the other hand, <laughs> in and of themselves, they were, it's fine. I think it was the combination of it being Pussy Hats and the Women's March, and there was a feeling that there was an equation going on there, that, that one was the same as the other. But again, I understand Deborah's point about standing in solidarity. It's because I feel that was direct response to Donald Trump talking about pussy grabbing. Yeah, I didn't yeah. feel those hats would have oh, been yeah. there just yeah. as a metonymy for womanhood. Yeah. It was there were a lot of men wearing it. I've there were a lot of men, men wearing it. Yeah. And it's sort of the same how I feel about my friend who's already passed the menopause saying... I'll get angry about the tampon tax, even though I don't need tampons anymore. Oh, please don't start that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you see what I mean, Rooms? So, and I know yeah. you don't speak for all trans people and no, all non-binary people. On behalf people. of my people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, is there a language? If I said on Twitter, well, I think those hats are there as a response to a specific reference to Donald Trump, the President of the United States being able to talk about pussy grabbing and then be elected as one of the most powerful people in the world, and I want my trans sisters to march with me. If women want to wear a vagina on their head, I don't want to stop <laughs> yeah. them. Like, I, think, I think the little cat ears, for me, with them, it was kind of like, I think the reason I was okay with those is because I feel like, and I move in a circle where it's common for trans people to refer to their genitals in a way that might not be immediately congruent with how cis people would see their genitals, which is to say, you might have a dick, but you call it a clit, or you call it a vagina, or you call it a pussy. Actually, not you have a dick. You have a thing that people think looks like a dick, but... <laughs> she just buzzed herself. Ruth buzzed herself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the table. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> um, so, you, yeah, you have something that other people would identify as a penis, but is in right. fact... Yeah. Uh, functions as a vagina to you? If you Although, identify as female, mm. then... then but the medically, it operates as a penis, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, but very... medically, schmedically. Like, speaking <laughs> as someone who works in a medical faculty, pff, that's not the point. Like, the words we use for our body parts are very, very personal. To me, it doesn't matter if somebody call, what somebody calls their body parts as long as it's congruent with how they feel. And so, as a result of that, I feel like the pussy hats that were actually cats that were therefore a reference to a word, mm. they were fine. But the actual, like, sculptures of vaginas, mm. I don't mind the obscenity, 
but it's the equation between... But if that person has a vagina that looks like a traditional vagina, why can't she wear it on her <laughs> head? That doesn't... I, I don't think traditional five bars, whatever. Your vagina classic. Oh. Whatever you want to call it. I love it. I love it. Why can't she wear it I don't see how that excludes... I see that that's saying this is one sort of vagina. Now, if she goes, this is the only vagina in the world, there's no other sort of vagina... Kate, I, I think the problem is that nobody was going around wearing things that looked like what we would think of as male gender genitalia and saying, I'm a woman and this is mine and I'm entitled to it and you can't grab this either. And so it became a cis conversation. But, but isn't that, in a way, for trans women to do? It's not for cis women to start wearing a phallus on their head and saying, <laughs> this also is a no. vagina. Because it's not my experience. And I think that would be like, what's genital appropriation? Genital appropriation, that's what it is. <laughs> but, it, what I mean? but I can't, as a white person, because I realise people who aren't in the room can't see that about me, like, I'm not going to go to the Women's March and go, well, I'm going to represent black women today, mm. um, and I've painted myself accordingly because that's horrific. <laughs> and if that is ever taken out of context, I'm in so much trouble. The audience, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, Reverend I can Kate say... Reverend Kate Harford is blacked up tonight. <laughs> I think if you were at home, it was a shock to us all. She's blacked up and she's wearing a penis on her head and it says, this is a vagina, fuck you. This is not a pipe. But she's but, making it work. Yeah, it really goes with the collar. It just goes somehow. But the, the point is, I can't claim either of those spaces, but I can acknowledge that they weren't, that nobody was creating them. That nobody was invited... People didn't feel... I'm sorry, I now think maybe I'm speaking for other people and I want to buzz myself a bit, but the impression I got from what was being said to me is that nobody felt like they'd been offered the space. Yeah, so I was going to say, it takes quite a lot of preparation to sculpt a 3D impression of your own <laughs> vagina to wear on your head. And if you're going to that much preparation, you could perhaps email a trans sister and say, I'm doing this, do you think it's okay... Do you want to march next to me with something that looks more like what you've got stroke had? I feel like saying that this is what I've got isn't really... I feel like it's not really a sufficient excuse because it's not a spur-of-the-moment decision to take your vagina off sure. and put it on your head. It was a single um, pattern, wasn't it? People weren't knitting their own. <laughs> I yeah, don't think it's a 3D I'm printer situation, <laughs> no. <laughs> Sitting in front but of a mirror. Rubes, can I push back, Deborah. given this is minefields? Certainly. Okay. On that, though, the pussies that Trump is grabbing and talking about grabbing are Vagina Classic. <laughs> the original ones. How do you know that? And how does he know that? <sighs> oh, good question. Oh. Good question. That's a good, good move, question. isn't it? That's a good move. Yeah. Good question. Uh, okay. The pussies trump... Oh, this is awful words, all of these. Oh. I'm not liking any of these words. <laughs> We're going to break the trump. buzzer on this, yeah. aren't we? He doesn't the... think he's attracted to trans women. Yes, because I know he's such a horrible, alpha, macho, horrible man. He wants to grab cisgendered vaginas. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes, what's happening to me now... Because I do a feminist podcast. I speak about this stuff a lot. I edit out any reference to my vagina, any reference to my period, any reference to ovaries, any reference to anything that is of my body. And I feel like 
the cis female body is still under attack. Absolutely. It's still under invasion. We don't have enough rights yet. Like, my cisgendered sisters in Northern Ireland have to get on a fucking ferry. And transmasculine brothers. And my transmasculine brothers. Thank you. Have to get... (laughs) Just editing me saying that, though. Uh, (laughs) Have to get on a ferry from my country, and we go on about America and... No, in the United Kingdom, in order to have, like, a little tiny collection of cells that is going to grow into a huge life-changing responsibility. They have to get on a ferry that maybe they can ill afford to come here because their bodies are under attack. And those bodies include ovaries, uteruses. Those bodies bleed every month. And while there's a tampon tax, and while those bodies are under invasion, are under attack, I feel... I need to stop editing out those words. Absolutely. And at the moment, I edit them out all the time. And it really is starting to worry me. I so genuinely, with all of my heart, believe my trans sisters are women. I don't have a secret thing where I go, yeah, but they're not. I don't. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Because, you know, we, and, it, and it is like, oh, some of my best friends are trans. I don't mean that, but I do mean... <laughs> I have a friend who's trans. She doesn't have any trans friends. I, I, <laughs> and she's got, she's got no, black friends no. too. Yeah. But I do mean this. That I, you know, it's really hard for me to see my trans female friends as male. I don't see them that way. I don't feel that way. But I feel like I want the solidarity to be... And I understand why, at the moment, the transgender community is saying, more space for us, more space for us, because there's been traditionally no space. And I understand the anger, and I understand the need to occupy some space. It's absolutely fucking valid. But, Rubes, how do we work together, all of us, so that Layla feels 100% supported in her real, live work to stop the clitorises of cisgendered teenage girls and... Babies. And babies. And babies, we don't know yet whether they're male or female because they haven't had time to understand their identity. How do we talk about the clitoris? How do we we salute the vagina? How do we say this is my fucking ovaries and not, in a way, be trans-exclusionary? How do we make this happen? I think part of what makes it tricky is the tendency of TERFs, they don't like being called TERFs, which is part of why I called them it, Um, which stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and it's people like Jermaine Greer who say that you're not a woman if you haven't had a big smelly vagina, or alternatively, that you're not a woman if your vagina was created surgically because then it's big and smelly. Genuinely, two separate quotes. She also said we shouldn't intervene in FGM because it's a cultural practice. So this is a special person. Jermaine is not invited on the podcast. I think what we've just learned. She is a special kind of... of, of, (laughs) She's very special and God loves her. Um, (laughs) um, Kate, is that true? You have daily conversations. I can't speak for my employer. Okay, so people like that love to make a big deal out of the physiology and the medical 
um, definition of sex in a way that is outdated, inconsistent with science, and definitely inconsistent with people's lived experiences. And they do that by, in my view, misappropriating the exact language that Deborah now, wrongly, I think, has been made to feel she needs to edit out I of know. this podcast. I think there should be a podcast, that we, and we should call it Deborah Reclaiming Her Body. <laughs> it, and it's I not, really listen, I feel, one. look, I'm privileged, I've got a cis body with, you know, two arms and two legs and a perfectly functional vagina. So I'm not saying, oh, poor me. It's not about me. It's about the community of women whose bodies I feel are under attack. And the fact that I notice, like, I'm not a radical, I wouldn't say I'm a radical feminist. I'd say I'm a pragmatic, liberal feminist who 100% wants to include and aspires to include all feminists. But Deborah, this is where you use your privilege to do that. Privilege is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how you use privilege. So you're created this stage, so you use that privilege to bring those conversations to the forefront. And this is where we come in. You occupy that space. We come in and support you. That's how it works. It's Deborah Francis-White from The Guilty Feminist, briefly interrupting The Guilty Feminist to say that this coming Saturday, the 16th of September, Global Pillage is at the King's Place Podcast Festival in London at 4pm, featuring me, Desiree Birch, Rosie Jones, Francesco DiCarlo and others at 4pm. If you'd like to get tickets for that, go to the King's Place website this Saturday, the 16th of September. It's going to be a special Christmas slash end-of-year festive episode. So it's going to be a really good fun one. Wear a Christmas hat if you'd like to. There's going to be lots and lots of good fun stuff going on. If you can't come to that one, you could book for the 5th of November or the 18th of November. Come along and be in the hive mind. If you'd like to see The Guilty Feminist and you are in Melbourne, Australia, we will be at the Wheeler Centre as part of the Festival of Questions. You can book for the whole day for $60 or just for The Guilty Feminist part, which is called What the Hell, The Handmaid's Tale in 2017, for $20. That's on the 15th of October in Melbourne. And you can book at wheelercentre.com. If you are in Sydney, you can see us at Giant Dwarf on the 18th 19th and 21st of October, tickets at giantdwarf.com.au. And if you would like to come and see us in Brisbane, we are at the State Library Queensland on October the 20th. Go to trybooking.com. If you are in New Zealand and you would like to see us, The Guilty Feminist will be in Auckland at the Town Hall on the 28th and 29th of October. We've added an extra show there. And just go to ticketmaster.co.nz and you will find us. Today in the show, you can hear Rubes Walsh on our panel. And she is doing a show called Oi Sissy about all things trans and cis at the Amsterdam Fringe Festival from the 13th of September for a few nights. You can go to amsterdamfringefestival.ni if you'd like tickets for that. Or you can see the same show in London with Rubes Walsh at Camden People's Theatre on the 29th of September at 9pm. Go to cptheatre.co.uk to see Rubes Walsh doing that. Hope to see you live at some of these shows very soon. Back to The Guilty Feminist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're going to hear a little bit uh, from the wonderful Rubes Walls. Put your hands together. Oh, don't look so worried. It's okay. I mean, yes, I am trans, but I will only bite if you ask extra nicely. I promise. (laughs) So, more important to know about me is, as we've talked about, I'm a neuroscientist, and being trans and a neuroscientist, I spend more time than I would like reading things that psychiatrists somehow manage to get published in peer-reviewed journals about trans people. So, I thought it would amuse and interest to share some of these with you. So the first come as a pair, physical attractiveness of girls with gender identity disorder and physical attractiveness of boys with gender identity disorder. Now, in these two articles, cisgender adults rate the attractiveness of topless photos of trans children. Yeah. (laughs) So that's creepy. (laughs) And then they've also helpfully labeled the articles, which was very useful to split them into a binary of genders with trans people. (laughs) And then labelled the articles about girls, trans girls, with the word boys in the title, and the article about trans boys with the word girls in the title. So that's super helpful, especially like when you're trying to find the relevant article for a reference. I mean, not that anyone would ever need to reference this. It's not science, it's shit. No. (laughs) Anyway, another thing. Video gaming and gaming addiction in transgender people. So we can't play games now. Apparently that's a pathology as well. And then, now this is a gem. The concept of autogynophilia and the typology of male gender dysphoria, in which this cis white bloke, Ray Blanchard, who has always had this idea that the whole reason that trans people are trans is because it's somehow easier to find a partner of the opposite sex. That's right, Carrie. If you were a trans dude, you'd be getting all the girls. Because being trans is basically just being super gay. Like, I was swimming in glitter and diva music, and that's how I became a woman. (laughs) So then you get people going, but I'm trans and gay. And he's like... 
Ah, yes, non-homosexual transgenderism. Well, that's obviously just where people get so obsessed with vaginas that they want one for themselves. It's just a kinky fetish for vaginas, because we all know that's so different from being a lesbian, because lesbians don't like vaginas at all. And then he also invented this other word, gynandromorphophilia, which is basically to describe men who fancy trans women. But then he has the audacity to go on Twitter and say, one of the problems with trans women insisting on existing is that of how we find attractive people to have sex with them. Now, people were pretty cross about this, and he was very surprised and outraged at their anger, which I don't have any sympathy for, but I just thought it was quite funny. Like, I'm definitely getting a lot more than him. Like, a lot more. Like, I don't want to do an empirical study on this. I mean, for a start, he'd probably come up with a new term, like sluttiaris transgenderalius or something, to describe me. But also, he's blocked me on Twitter, so I can't get in touch with him. The reason I blocked him on Twitter, by the way, is because... No, he blocked me, rather, on Twitter. It's because he tweeted that there was this type of trans that didn't fit into his typology. And then he says, but is it true transgenderism? And I was like, yes, yes, it is. Yes, the problem is that whenever something that's trans that doesn't fit into your made-up bullshit typology comes along, you try and classify it out of existence because you're a pseudoscientist, or words to that effect. So he blocked me. (laughs) Thanks. Being blocked by Ray Blanchard is like a badge of approval in trans academic circles. (laughs) You see what some academics get away with when studying trans people. And then you get actual parents make the actual parenting decision not to coercively gender their child before that kid is able to express their own gender identity. And they get told that it's a dangerous experiment, like the child's going to grow up to identify as a pineapple or something. (laughs) Like, the whole of society isn't just one massive, unethical social experiment in the coercive gendering of children. Like, we have parties where we celebrate the genitals of unborn fetuses. Hooray for the uterus inside your uterus, we say. And then once they're born, we colour code them so that strangers can tell what shape their genitals are. Now, at some point, for most people, everyone stops obsessing about your genitals because it gets really creepy but not if you're trans. Oh, no. Take airport security. They've got these new body scanners. Have you seen them? And they, I think the body scanner must look at me and go, well, you can't have both. One of those must be a gun. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like what? Like, I'm a fembot and I'm going to start firing explosives out of my nipples? (laughs) Speaking of sci-fi women, though, The new Doctor, are we excited or what? (laughs) Handy that she's a Time Lord stroke lady stroke time time peer, though, because, (laughs) because regeneration doesn't come with all the same paperwork as transition. I mean, sometimes I really feel like having a gender transition is mostly paperwork. I think some people imagine that trans people spend our lives standing in the consulting rooms of surgeons trying to choose from, I don't know, different exploding nipples. But actually, we just grab the ones with the automated fascist targeting and get back to the admin. (laughs) Like, ever since 
the man of the people commodity trader Nigel Farage got so extremely on our collective tits that we fucked over our economy just to shut him up, I've been having to go back and forth to the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs trying to get a passport sorted. And it's the same as with the British ones. They want you to prove that you really are who you say you are. Now, I can understand that up to a point, but come on. This is my name, this is my gender, this is my existing passport with all of that stuff already on it. I didn't just do this on a whim. I didn't transition purely because I thought that a green passport with an F on it would go nicely with my green Fiorelli handbag. <laughs> Maybe I should go down to their offices and like, I don't know, show them my tits. But then they'd want them signed in triplicate and I've only got two. <laughs> so then I'm walking down the street and people are looking at me and I'm always thinking that they're trying to work out what I am. I mean, they're probably just admiring my hair and wondering what shampoo I use, but they, I think they're working out what I am. And so I try to show people what I am. I'm a scientist, I'm an activist, I'm a feminist, I'm a woman, and I'm really, really weird. Let's just accept that. But my gender, that's just my gender. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Gender expression and gender identity. Actually, I'm going to throw this to Rubes and Kate. What's the difference between gender expression and gender identity? Because I don't think we talk about this enough. So there's your assigned gender at birth, which means the doctor says it's a boy or it's a girl. Then there's your gender identity. What's that? It's who you are inside. Okay. And what's your gender expression? It's what you wear on the outside and how you express your experience of gender to other people. So the general division would be like, gender identity is words like woman or female, or man or male, and gender expression is more like femme and masculine. And what does that have to do it's with our sexual orientation, Kate? Absolutely nothing, <laughs> genuinely. So for me, as a cis person, my gender assigned at birth lines up with my gender identity and happens to line up with my gender expression. But there are some people in the broader queer community for whom their expression of gender, they may see themselves as cis, but define, for example, as a stone butch or... What's a stone butch? Can you just define that? It's probably quite an old-fashioned term now, but I still see it used. Have people seen Orange is the New Black? Yes. yes. Right, big boo. Yeah. And Leia Delaria still defines as butch and has spoken in interviews about having to resist people assuming that she is a wannabe trans person. Because as a butch lesbian, people look at her and say, oh, well, but obviously, if you understood gender correctly, you'd be non-binary or you'd be trans. So there are still specific queer gender expressions that we've honed over our history that exist kind of for us and in our space and are still cis expressions of gender. So a sexual orientation is who we're attracted to or nobody, if you are asexual or aromantic very good point your gender assigned at birth is boy or girl and that's usually based or could be intersex usually based on your genitalia at birth is that correct um well no not not entirely intersex God isn't a gender isn't a sorry intersex wouldn't be a gender assigned at birth except possibly in germany maybe a few other countries where what they... do you mean except possibly in germany <laughs> what okay. happens there okay so here when you're born the midwife usually looks at what's between your legs and ticks a box on a form. So that's the highly scientific method that we use for assigning gender. And that's pretty much the case in almost all of the world. Recently, Germany 
changed the rules so that intersex babies could have an X instead of an M or an F, effectively. And, and intersex means and that... intersex is whenever somebody isn't completely sexually dimorphic, which is to say women with slightly above average testosterone levels are technically intersex. Wait, I but... thought it was if you had... Um... God, and it has ambiguous a... genitals. Thank you. That, yeah. So that's that's the most common definition. It's certainly the most important one. But for talking slightly about more testosterone gender. makes you intersex. Because I reckon I might have slightly more testosterone. Well, it's technically an intersex condition. Yeah. When we talk about oh, assigned man. sex at birth <clears throat> or assigned gender at birth, it's an administrative decision that is taken, mm. and as a result, mm. intersex babies in this context mostly means people with ambiguous genitals. Right. And. It's probably important, since we're on the subject, to note that it is still relatively common practice, even in this country, to do surgery on these babies to make them either one thing or the other, um, obviously without the baby's consent and sometimes even without the parent's consent or knowledge. Really? Yes. What, they just take the baby, operate on its genitalia? This really yeah. steps into your zone, Layla, with... Female genital mutilation. Yeah. Well, well, talk about minefield yeah. in, in this. I mean... Before we actually go into the work that I do, but I think what the question I want to ask, so are we saying, is gender identification a condition that we all kind of took on? It's um, sort of based on whether the nurse who picked us up first found an innie or an outie, yeah, and then we're expected yeah. to take that on for, an, it feels to me almost as arbitrary as your belly button. So yeah. you, yeah. you're given this and you're going to be assigned it for the rest of your life and conditioned through it. I mean, even really high-profile conversations about the experiences of trans women when they were being gendered by other people as male are all conditioned by the fact that we assume that there are these two fundamental conditions and that our experiences are entirely shaped by that initial decision of one nurse in one yeah. minute. Will that step into the camp for you with female genital mutilation or yeah, gender mutilation? Yeah, because for me, what this whole conversation is bringing up for me is that we live in a society where we obsess with people, like we judge people based on their genitals. Mm -hmm. So, for example, women like myself and over 200 million other women were mutilated based on their gender because there was this condition mm. in order for you to be accepted to be a woman in this society, actually, we're going to remove your clitoris, your labias, you know, both labias. Actually, mm. to make sure you're sexually controlled, we're going to actually close your whole genitals. So for me, it's, and again, it's, there's no consent. This is happening to children. No one makes that decision. But for me, the word conditioning yeah. keeps coming mm. up actually in this conversation that's what I'm my friend was telling me her little daughter was two and my friend was telling me that her daughter was saying mummy's a girl and she said yes and she said I'm a girl yes but daddy's a boy and she said I thought oh well yes but I mean it's not you don't want to be imposing gender on everyone, darling. But she said, I thought gender fluidity was too much for a two-year-old. So I just <laughs> went, yes, yes. And just she said, I did think, oh. But I said, you know, to, we were talking about it. And I said, she's just finding ways to categorize the world. So she's also going, these are children. These are grown-ups. These are children who go to my nursery. These are the children that go to the other nursery. Mm. These boys, these are... Girls. She's finding a way to categorize, to make sense of the world. And human beings have to be able to quickly make decisions is it more labeled than categorizing yeah. i think it's where spoke, it comes it? Yeah. from that we want to make quick choices yeah. which probably comes from a desire to tribe and survive mm. where it becomes unuseful is where we say everyone's got to be in this camp or this camp and stay in their camp and we've also decided there are forms of expression gender expression to me seems to be almost entirely arbitrary in the 1700s men powdered their faces wore makeup powdered their hair wore wigs and wore high heels yeah and how would you have felt about doing that then? Not super. 
Probably. Mm. Probably really not super. Probably would have felt like um, wearing a big man sign. Mm. <laughs> but today you're wearing heels. I am indeed, yes. Because that's a gender expression of femininity in our society. Well, it goes with my outfit. Yes, sure. Because it's a gender expression <laughs> of femininity. But that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because that is entirely cultural then. It's like what the boys are wearing because that feels like my tribe. We really have to start getting our head around this. It seems to me yeah. implausible that of the six billion people in the world, every single one of those fits over here or over here. It's a bit like astrology. You know, I need to read this made-up column that tells me how I'm going to behave as an Aquarian <laughs> today. And I could just as easily pick up a magazine for women that says, okay, so today you're going to be wearing pink lipstick rather than red, and your skin tone has to be changed in this particular way, and your eyes have to be highlighted in this particular way, and this is where you're going to buy your clothes, and this is how you're going to have sex, because you're a woman. Where so can I get this magazine? It seems like it solved all of my problems. <laughs> We're like, I'm, I'm sort of like, yeah, 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 sure. I make no further decisions. I was, I was really drawn in then. Give me glamour. Boom. It's true. That imposition of gender, it's basically thrust on all of us. But also I do enjoy, and I wonder, do I just enjoy the tribal space? Or is there something about the dress up? I sometimes think it's a sort of female privilege to dress up. I sometimes wonder why the patriarchy let us have it. Because they take all of the good stuff, but they let us have glitter. Well, let's not say... Why do they not snatch it for themselves? Well, let's, I don't let's, understand. Let's not say they let us have it. Let's say we took it. But come on. What else have we taken? Oh. Fuck all. I mean, if, if there was space for us to take something and we chose glitter, <laughs> then we deserve this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I really like glitter. Oh, yeah, no, it's brilliant. But Do you know what I mean, though? We get yeah. all of the interesting clothes. I just look at men sometimes, and but I is think... It, is it for them, though? Is that what it is? Because yeah, it's exactly. for them. Yeah, partly. And this is the conversation I've had with a lot of feminists who said to me, oh, no, you're not a feminist because you're wearing red lipstick and high heels, and you're doing this for men. I remember actually looking around the room, and I thought, there are a lot of angry feminists in this room. I don't see a guy. But, like, you know, what if you I were gay? Like, maybe you were dressing up because you wanted to attract a woman. But like, what's I mean, wrong that, with wanting to attract true. that? That's the I thing. just think gender expression is largely for yourself. Like, yes. it's how I feel comfortable yeah. going out yeah. of the house. And of course it's to attract people I'm attracted to. Of course it's so other women are jealous of my handbag. <laughs> I'm, I'm only human. But, but I do often look at... Uh, now, this is, uh, we sometimes call Rubes Walsh the rephraser because I'll say something in certain language and then we basically go like she's a superhero. So I may be going My to say... language senses are tingling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I may be going to say this the incorrect way, but I think there's a lot of times where expressions associated with extreme femme is seen as a pejorative by the feminist community. And it's like, well, that's not as good. Is it because it's frivolous? Is it because it's an extreme form of femininity? Is it because it's seen as entertaining gentlemen callers? Um, <laughs> and that we're there really just putting our wares on display for the patriarchy? What is that kind of femphobia and is it appropriate? I mean, I worry that femphobia actually comes from wanting to be the cool girl. You know, wanting to fit in with the patriarchy. If you wear trousers and wear a tailored suit and go into work in 
you know, even if you're wearing heels, you're wearing the uniform of the workplace. Mm. But who established the uniform of the workplace? It wasn't us. Mm. I was in my workplace for about six months before I put all my piercings back in. And, it, you know, it's all these little insidious mm. things where you think, I'm not going to look fully professional if I walk into work with a nose ring. Mm. Or I'm not going to look, yeah, somebody's laughing because I've got pink hair and I'm worried about my nose ring. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, are people going to take me seriously if I have pink hair? And eventually I just go, oh, sod it. They seem to take me seriously. I'll just dye my hair pink. It's probably fine. Now I can't dye it back because if I go into work with a hat on, people don't know who I am. Mm. <laughs> but that's a whole other problem. <laughs> One way in which I think it's a bit trans-exclusionary to be anti-femme, because I think one way in which transgender women get to exercise their gender expression is by playing in that space, is by saying, I'm going to put on the external attributes of femininity, in inverted commas, in order to tell the world who I really am. Is that true, Rubes? I think so. I think I said to my mum recently... I can't remember why. I think I was whinging about a boy or something. I said to her recently, you know, you didn't have a teenage daughter before and now I'm 26 and you do. Um, (laughs) And I think all of the hormone-related stuff to one side, I think coming out as trans involves exploring gender in a way that we do during our sort of early to mid-adolescence. And so there's a reason why trans people early on in their transition often look a little bit exaggerated. And part of it is about trying to give the cues that are necessary in a society where bodies are seen as far more important signifiers of gender Mm -hmm. to override that. But part of it is about trying to reclaim that space, learn where the lines are. There's a brilliant phrase that some clever cis people who are good with trans children in their clinic came up with this expression of gender literacy, learning where the lines are, learning the way through the town that you've just moved to of Womanville or <laughs> Butch Womanville or, you know, or something else entirely, Ville. So I think So that's, you can tribe up. It's a bit like yeah. if you move to a new school and at your old school all the girls wore makeup and the new school nobody does and suddenly you think, oh, I'm over-gendered if you're a cis woman. You can suddenly find yourself... Does anyone remember this as an adolescent? You find Mm -hmm. yourself in an environment where you're not saying the right words, you don't have the right slang, everyone else has got a nickname and you don't, and something about your outfit is wrong. Mm. And you can't quite put your finger on what it is either. And then someone might take you aside and go we don't dress like that here. And you tribe up because you don't want to be ostracised, you don't want to be bullied, you, you don't want your attention. It's hmm? that wanting to belong to mm. a particular group. Desperately wanting to belong. And on that, gender neutral bathrooms, minefield. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I that think, now I sounds think like the doorbell. Mind insistence on the, on the buzzer was a little bit um, oppressive. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, press. Oh, yeah. boom. We are a team. <laughs> it's puns like it's that. It's a that comedy can... podcast, guys. Uh, so, Rubes, gender-neutral bathrooms. Yes, uh, as a non-binary person, if yep. that, is that all right to say? Yep. I've done, said it now. Uh, as a non-binary person, uh, how do you feel about gender-neutral bathrooms? It's handy to be able to pee. Right. <laughs> Good. And you're, you... <laughs> if you take nothing else away... From tonight. It's handy to grab to me. Say that. Yeah. Do you have gender neutral bathrooms? 
We don't own our own building, so we are at the mercies of the building we're in. In spaces where we can take ownership of them, so for example at MCC General Conference, we always make sure that all of the toilets are entirely gender neutral. So there will be sanitary provision in any bathroom regardless of where it started. You know, if there's deodorants provided in one bathroom, then we'll get the venue to provide them in both. You know, all of that kind of stuff. So it's not just about whether you have a urinal or a cubicle, it's really what space have you walked into. Right. And, you know, some things we can't change. If one was tiled pink because they expected people with vaginas to be using it, then there's not much <laughs> we can do about that. But part of being fully inclusive is saying, actually, this is what you do. And I know there has been some move to saying things like, well, the accessible toilet should be accessible to everybody. But what that's kind of saying is pathologizing the idea that you don't feel comfortable in either stick figure with skirt or stick figure with trousers toilet. So you have to go to this other one, which ordinarily we reserve for people with particular need because we've suddenly decided that you have particular need. But to be honest, I have to admit, I'm slightly baffled by the fact we gender toilets at all. Maybe it's because I spend a lot of time in queer spaces, but I'm not really worried about who's in the next door cubicle or (laughs) if I can't see the urinals, I'm not that fussed. I don't really like to watch other people pee, but that's my preference. I can always go to a toilet without a urinal. And that's a much easier decision for me to make than to have to decide whether I'm going to go to the toilet where I might experience violence because people read me as female or I might experience violence because people read me as male. You know, my decision yeah. that I don't really like to see people pee is a very minor thing in the grand scheme of things. I was going to ask about this because is there a decent argument for gendered toilets? Because I don't understand why toilets are gendered. Well, I think it's tradition. Of course, well, if they weren't, yeah, that then a good again. reason. There's, there's this is, yeah. idea of being conditioned. I mean, for me, my only issues with toilets has been the long queues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is why I have an issue. I don't care who's... If there's a man or... Sometimes I, don't know, I really yeah. wish I'd dressed more butch so I could use the men's when yeah. there's a long queue because it's like, well, I need to pee. One argument Rube's raised to me is that some transgender women who feel they fought very hard to get to use the ladies' room and that the ladies' room is a sort of sacred space where you can do your makeup that smells relatively nice, where you can talk with other girls. Yeah. That hasn't been my experience. Speaking yeah. as someone who sort of went from one and then to the other with a big overlap in the middle, my experience has not been that the ladies' rooms smell better. That's interesting. It, well, it's just... Wow. I, I think they I do. I think that's the most controversial thing that has been said on either of these podcasts. <laughs> or ever in the history of the Gets yes. Feminist. And, and I'm not saying this is an argument for... But I'm saying the, when you ask what are the arguments, one of the arguments is all the girls go to the loo together and we all have a lovely chat in the loo. We meet in the loo and sometimes we want to talk about a boy who's in the nightclub. And so we have... It's like a little tribal safe yeah, space. It, it really is. And there are women who have been... Okay, I'm just going to put this out on the table because it's minefields and we've always got the edit. Mm. There are women who've been sexually assaulted who do not want to be in a confined space. So say it's late at night, it's 2 a.m. You go into the nightclub bathroom, there's only you and you come out of a stall and there's a big man right there and it's a sort of secluded area. It's an area where people are taking their pants down. It suddenly feels dangerous to them and they want a gendered space where they feel safe. Now, that to me is not ever a reason to exclude trans women or non-binary people. But, sorry, if you are a cis man and in your audience, I'm not assuming you're going to assault me in a loo. (laughs) And if you are, I think the sign on the door probably isn't going to stop you. I don't think that's true. I think the fact that it is routine, if a man is seen to go into the ladies' room and someone sees, they'll go, what's he going in there for? 
he's much more likely to be stopped. If it's routine, then much less likely to be. But But I would say there's certain spaces, like nightclubs. There is a whole construct of... We're sort of playing violence hierarchy, aren't we, really? it's So trying to keep women safe, but also... You know, actually, trans people are more likely to be attacked for going into the wrong bathroom than a cis woman is likely to be attacked in a gender-neutral space, as far as we know, and I realise these are really difficult things to measure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But violence against trans women, particularly trans women of colour, of all the people on this earth, trans women of colour are the most likely to be victims of violence. So if we're working out who we're protecting surely the protection default is towards the most vulnerable. Now, there are always other options. There is nothing to stop a woman who needs her own space from using the accessible toilet. And frankly, if you've experienced that kind of violence in an enclosed space, you may wish to be around nobody. And that should also be completely acceptable, to just claim that you need access to that space because your history should give you that right. Maybe it's because I don't really go to clubs where there are straight people. But I would never, I'd never be able to talk about anybody in the toilet because literally anybody could be in the cubicle next to you at any point. Or you're doing your makeup, but the person you're doing your makeup next to could be of any gender or none and you have no idea. Mm. And they might be the person your mate was just snogging, but you're not really sure because it was a bit dark. So maybe it's best just not to say anything. Mm. I don't know. Maybe we just do our gossiping somewhere else. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm not suggesting that gossip is a good enough reason to exclude people. I'm just saying when you asked about the reasons, and one reason is transgender women often feel like I've worked really hard to get into this loo. And Mm -hmm. now you're saying... It's this Lewis for everybody. Yeah, I think uh, my feeling is I think that's comparatively trivial to if I go into that bathroom, I will be assaulted. And if Mm. I don't go into that bathroom, I will wet myself. Have you ever had an incident in a bathroom where someone's questioned you? Yeah, it's it's pretty routine. And most trans people have experienced it at some point. Is there a solution that you can see that could be implemented in the next 12 months, Rubes? No pressure. (laughs) The short-term solution is to make toilets gender neutral the longer term solution is actually why do we have these like long rows of it doesn't save very much space to Mm. do the long rows of cubicles thing so if you just have single person little rooms which you have in a lot of places anyway i mean you have one in your home probably i mean if you have that individual space with one toilet in it and a sink that is much easier and it also then immediately makes those spaces more accessible for quite a lot of disabled people even if you don't have the extra width for Mm -hmm. power chairs and so forth. There are individual cubicle bathrooms in public places with male and female on the two doors that can have those labels taken off and replaced with Mm -hmm. the word toilet. What about if you want to do class A drugs? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think my solution works better for that too, doesn't it? (laughs) Sure, with a friend. (laughs) Okay, do we have any questions from the audience? I'm going to be a tosser and tell an anecdote, but it is a bathroom anecdote from today that I'm non-binary, but I tend to go to the women's bathroom because problematic, I feel, in that bathroom, I could statistically take more of the people in a fight if it came to it. (laughs) Um, But this is the guilty... You can buzz me for that room. This is the guilty feminist. I went to the men's bathroom today because I was like, I know the cubicles are quite near the door. There's not going to be a queue. Um, The queue thing is an issue. I read an interesting article about that in the US, um, one of the United States parliaments about how they suddenly had more women senators or something, but they didn't have enough bathrooms. Interesting article. You've read it, you're nodding. Um, And I went into the bathroom and then 
I was bleeding, I needed to put something in the bin, and it was the men's bathroom, there was no bin. And then I had to walk past all the urinals like, uh-oh. I got out, I'm here, it's all good, nothing happened. Bathroom, anecdote. Thank you. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Jess. Can I, can, I, can I just say something now that we're talking about bathrooms? You will find, actually, with uh, women who've experienced FGM, especially type 3, are totally closed. They take 30 minutes to urinate. And this is an issue mm. a lot of these women have had. So people are knocking on the door, telling them to come out. Mm. But it really does take them half an hour to urinate. So now that we're talking about bathrooms, I thought I'd bring that up. Mm. Just, to, just to set the mood. Wow. <laughs> I take longer if I'm reading on my phone. Because <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't pee and read at the same time, so it takes ages. I've sent a couple of emails. If you can't pee and read at the same time, don't try and pee and read at the same time. I know. I feel well, like I, I feel like Layla's I feel, feel like Layla's thing is a better reason. Yeah. Oh sure. I'm not finally. I'm not <laughs> suggesting. I'm not. I'm, I'm not suggesting iPhone privilege. Uh, um, <laughs> So uh, this minefield show is a lot more about going to the loo than any <laughs> other perspective. Any other questions? Yes, somebody there. Do you think there's a conflict or a tension that needs to be resolved between making spaces gender accessible or gender non-specific and making them accessible to women who or non-binary people who do who want a private space where they're not seen by men to adjust some of their clothes to adjust the scarf? And this is something that's come up in education sometimes when formerly female only spaces have been made gender neutral, like women's colleges. It's been a good thing in many ways, but it's made those spaces less of an option for women for whom that's their only space. Mm. So, do you mean if someone's wearing a headscarf or a burqa or something like that? Or a, I've just totally forgotten the name of the thing orthodox Jewish ladies wear, but that thing... A shaitel. A shaitel, thank you. Or even not for religious reasons. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if there's a hierarchy yeah. or a conflict and anyone might have an and answer to that. And it's not just for women. I mean, I'm Muslim by name, <laughs> whether I practice that's questionable. But I personally, when I go swimming or to the sauna room in my local uh, leisure centre, I absolutely prefer to go on the, the days when it's just women. Mm-hmm. I just prefer it. It's mm-hmm. nothing to do with me... No, I just feel, I don't know, I just feel much safer when I'm around. So I'd be it worried. It is cultural, isn't it? I, was actually, I prefer it. I was in the Netherlands doing a job, a corporate job over there, and they were all like, are you coming to the spa with us afterwards? And I was like, <laughs> no, like come to the Shauna with us. And, it's, it's, and I was like, I was with Sean Connery. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and wow. uh, in Amsterdam, it was good times. And, uh, and I said, I would want to wear a bathing suit. And they said, oh, English people always so covered up. It's so hilarious. You would make us feel uncomfortable. And they would say, you have to take it off. You're making everyone else uncomfortable with your bathing suit. And I was like, how am I the uncomfortable one? I've got it all covered. And they were like, exactly. And what are you doing? Making a statement about our nudity. What is wrong with you? You're so uptight. You're British people. Conditioning, and, and, you know, you're right. And I was like, it is true, it's conditioning. No, I actually challenged myself in the next couple of months, at some point I'm going to go into a space like that mm. where it is mixed. And I'm telling myself there'll be a hot guy in there. <laughs> like, that is my motivation. Is this bathing suits on or off? 
I'm going to make sure I have a wax before I go. So it's basically it's off. Right, okay, yeah. and, 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 and the eyebrows done. So there's more work involved, I guess. This doesn't sound like a feminist challenge at all. Yeah. Sounds like I'm having That's why works. I'm here. Yeah. I'm waiting <laughs> till I know Guilty. that Dave is there. Then I'm going to go in and be all like, it's a challenge. That'll be it's my next fem- I'm a feminist, but... Yes. I, I joined a naturist club um, a few years ago. Do you know and you said that out loud? Yeah. <laughs> I did. I joined a naturist club in Cambridge. It was along the river, and it was the one bit of river you could swim in, in Cambridge. And I thought, I, fan- I fancy a bit of that. Um, the swimming. <laughs> and so I joined this naturist club, and they were incredibly sweet. And I arrived there, say hello, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to join the club. Middle-aged cis males with your cocks out um and they were very friendly and very welcoming there were three of them completely stark naked and one of them really sweetly said look we're very liberal here are are you (laughs) Um, we're very liberal here you can wear a bathing costume if you like and it was brilliant and it was i don't know why i'm telling this but it was oh i do yeah, I yeah. just like people to know. No, no, no. Um, it feels so. But it was so what that is. So it was so normal and so money. welcoming and not apart from for the first you know thirty seconds of my brain going, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down, da- don't look down. After that, it was they were so completely cool about it and cool about me wearing a bathing costume mm. that you sort of go, oh, maybe we maybe we are going to be all right. Yeah. Mm. It was lovely. But in terms of safe space, I think there is room for it, but there's room to change the boundaries of what that means a little bit. So we need to get away from, so I'm just going to use the example of the evangelical church tradition because I know it the best. We need to get away from like the men have big meaty barbecues and the women bake cakes. And those are our safe spaces. Mm. What we more need to be doing is saying, you know, do you need to have a safe conversation about your sex life and are you a person whose genitals look like this or who has sex in this particular way and then we have these safe conversations do you need to adjust your clothing where you're not going to be overseen by other people fine there's this space over here for you it's moving away from all of our conditioning being about whether we have an innie or an outie which yeah. I think might be my new catchphrase yeah. I yeah. if that changes um, when when that changes when the whole conditioning thing stops being so binary and nonsensical. Does gender expression therefore change? In a hundred years' time, let's say, I don't know, I'm making this up. In, in the future. Sorry, in the future. Could be 20 years' time, could be 100 years' time. When Jodie Whittaker's in charge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, She's going to take us to see this exciting future. Could a child who has so many different role models, so if instead of it's the high notes are women and the low notes are men. If there's this non-binary keyboard, we can all play in all of the spaces up and down. So a child will absolutely have an uncle who wears a dress and an auntie who is a Olympic boxer. And, you know, like there's just all sorts put of... mascara on her top lip. Hands. Yes. It's put... just, I just, I don't, I'm getting excited about this non-binary future, Yeah, yeah, guys. yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So where we all play, we all dress up, we all dress down, we all play here, we all play there... Will a child in that fantasy future go, oh, yeah, I'm a bit like Auntie Mary. I'm a, I'm a little bit like Uncle Vanessa. And I'm a little bit like this, a little bit like that. And so, therefore, what genitalia I have is absolutely represented by this, all of this gender identity and all of this gender expression. I don't need to transition because I'm not nowhere to go because where I am is great. Mm. Do you see that world and that place without in any way undermining the trans experience? Is that a possible world? 
that we could live in for some people. A lot of trans philosophers would call that post-trans, and I think that's a good thing. It's a little bit like some people talk about being post-feminist, and post-feminist doesn't make sense yet because we still have patriarchy. So in the same way, once we get rid of cissexism and transphobia and all the binary bullshit assumptions that come along with that, then yeah, we'll be post-trans because there won't be that enforced assigned starting point, so there won't be anything to trans away from. Mm. That's an exciting idea. I like it. Mm. Mm. Yes, please. Questions from the audience. I might feel there's somebody at the back. I feel like I may be jumping up and down on that minefield at the moment asking this question. But isn't it okay to stand up and fight for the one thing that you fight for? So I, on a daily basis, probably tell people I'm a feminist ten times. And I've got quite probably a limited definition of that to what that means in my life. But isn't it okay to stand up and say transgender is, you know, your number one thing that you fight for? Or people say black lives are the number one thing they fight for. And without saying all lives matter, so, like, but no, black lives matter, you know, and that's what they stand for. Isn't it okay to fight for that one thing and fight it well and do your best every day instead of trying to fight every cause. Okay, so what's the need for the ally, Kate? It's really interesting because I find ally space quite difficult to occupy and increasingly I am not sure that I necessarily even have the right to use the term ally because I worry that, yeah, I know, sorry. (sighs) Fucking hate everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like, language is so difficult. Like, I've learned tonight, I maybe shouldn't say trans, I maybe shouldn't say... No, 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 say trans, say trans. No, I will, but do you know what I mean, though? Like, people who are so angry on the internet going, you're trans-exclusionary, and the next minute someone goes, well, you're saying the word trans! (laughs) And I feel like we're all the people's public. You can't win, you just can't win. The big, big risk with all the minefields is that we end up fighting good people yeah and that's what the bad people want so i would say fight the battle that's important to you and we all support that yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah and support other people we're not encouraging violence by the way we keep using the word fighting yeah i mean the ally (laughs) thing was kind of a self-crit as well i don't mind other people using the word i just i don't know that i can claim that on behalf of people i'm standing next to i would really like to be their ally and i really hope i'm their ally but i also know that the minds are gonna it's back to what you were saying earlier if i tread on a mine that is not my mine it might well hurt somebody else and then do i have the right to say oh but i'm an ally so i didn't hurt you really and that's what i worry about with ally language is that people use it as a shield and actually it's not it doesn't give you the right to say whatever you like but equally you know i spend most of my life talking about queer christianity i don't devote much of my headspace, for example, to Black Lives Matter. I will take somebody on if they walk into my office and say all lives matter, it has happened. But it's not my primary thing. And I think, you know, we're a spectrum of feminisms and we all come together to create a whole... I I mean, that was a really good question, actually. And I think you're right from from what you said. I mean, all of us, even just looking at this table, we all fight in one particular battle. I'm known as the girl of the anti-FGM and the vagina cupcakes and... (laughs) My mother's not very keen on that stuff. But, um, <laughs> but it's one thing I've learned after 15 years of being involved in this work, and I hate even using the word campaign or cause, because we are talking about basic human rights we're mm-hmm. fighting for. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that's really important, the language that we use. But what I realised through that work, 
actually, I can't pick and choose what I support and don't support or work on. I think when we are all in these positions, we all play a role. So when I get on stage and I'm invited to come and talk about FGM, I have to talk about all forms of oppression against human beings. And I always say, you know, human rights is not a bloody Pizza Hut buffet where you get to choose, mm. you know, what you... Oh, no, I'm against FGM, but child marriage, I'm not so sure. You know, you can't really do that. Oh, no, not the LGBT stuff. Oh, please. You know, so for me, it really, that's... It's important to, you know, you can only do what you can do. Mm. But it's important when you are on a platform when you can speak about... Because you are, at the end of the day, we are all fighting for the same thing it's important that we are saying the same sentences. We're all fighting, because I think all of us here are fighting to be okay with just being our own unique individual human beings. That's really our battle at the end of the day. I am also aware of white feminism, of me going, oh, well, I'll just work on my thing, which is feminism, but what that can be interpreted as, or what the result of that can be is, let's work so that white women have as much privilege and influence as white men, and then we're done. If I just work on my patch, my patch is a pretty privileged patch, and I already get quite a lot of airtime and influence. So I feel with my influence, what I need to do is kind of shine a light and go, well, if I'm not giving any airtime to people who are non-binary or people who are trans or people who are people of colour or people who are queer, if I'm not allying up, if I'm not saying I want to include, I actively, actively want to include, and I don't know how I do it so that I don't, upset anyone or I would just say well I am going to upset people and that's okay absolutely actually what I learned from working on this actually you have to outrage people you will piss people off in order to make change and we have to be okay with it there was a hand up there yeah um I had a question for Leila um I can imagine in your work one minefield you have to continually deal with is the name FGM which has or has spurred many acronyms like um FGC, FG, oh god, Q, that, yes. um, that just seems to be going on and on. And I was wondering how you navigate that minefield in your daily work. Um, for me, actually, in terms of terminology, I've, it's been a bit of a journey. And actually, one of the things I've done as a therapist was actually it was one campaigner who really insisted, "Oh, Leila, stop calling it FGM." And I said, "Well, you know, when you actually check what happens to these, I mean, you can Google it. You will see it's not cutting or circumcision. What actually happens to these women? So that we can all be clear about. But obviously, I cannot tell." a survivor or what she should call it. So that's really important as well. So what I've done in my clinic at the moment, it's one of the questions that we've added during the assessment, is to ask every woman which terminology do you want to use? And it's been really interesting, quite interesting terminology. One of them calls it butchering, because who am I to tell her yeah. what's happened to her? One of them calls it genital genocide, because she goes, that's what happened to us, because, you know, this is genis mm. genocide against women. I've come to the conclusion now, and I was having this conversation this morning, actually. I'm filming for this documentary at the moment, and I said, I actually want to get rid of that term. Because for me, this is about violence of children, because it happened to us as children. Mm. This happened to me as a seven-year-old, where I was grabbed, pinned to a table, my legs were spread apart, and my genitals were touched, and it was cut. So for me, and actually it was a police officer two weeks ago who I saw at uh, this conference in Birmingham, he said, let Miss Hussein, because I never heard of FGM, but if I walked into a room and I saw that and I had to report this on a child, he goes, I wouldn't use the word FGM, I would have used serious sexual assault. And that's really what happened to us. And I think 
these words are constantly thrown in there to kind of make it separate. It's, it's not separate because if that happened to a blonde, blue-eyed girl, it would have been reported as mm. sexual assault. Mm. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, and this is the minefield I'm in most of the time with politicians who don't even call it FD, they call it FMG most of the time. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh God, we've got a long way to go. So, <laughs> so I'm like, let's just get rid of it. Let's call it for what it is. It's a serious sexual assault against children. One more question. Um, I don't doubt that everyone here wants to be much more inclusive about the way we speak and the way we kind of interact with people from other groups, but how do we go about making it in the mainstream when political correctness as a term is cast about as something that's very negative and something to be ignored? I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You just buzz just for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, political correctness... There's a very interesting history of that term. I imagine you probably know about it too, that it originated very much as a, a word to use for political language that you didn't like um, and that you thought was being imposed. Did anyone else notice the free speech bus that was going around America with stuff about boys are boys and girls are girls and that's it or yeah. something? That wasn't about free speech, was it? That was about saying that trans people aren't real. And I think... There is a risk with some of these issues that the difference between what it is right morally to say or who it is right morally to give a platform to, particularly on a specific topic, it's not the same thing as saying we should legislate against it. And I think freedom of speech is very specifically about government interference. Mm. But as a community of activists, we, I think, have a job to make sure that our discourse is as productive and as positive and as inclusive as possible. And that means you can work on your own thing, but don't say all women have vaginas. And if you say it by accident, say, whoops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. And that's okay. You know, we do fuck up. That is normal human life. And I mean, in comedy as well, that often, and especially portrayals of trans women in comedy, have traditionally been that being a trans woman was an inherently funny phenomenon. I, to be honest, I mean, there's a lot to laugh about me, but that's not what's funny. My social skills are quite funny sometimes. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, I think political correctness is a really handy red herring, and at the moment it's in the hands, as it were, of a very right-wing agenda to say that it's political correctness to say that, you know, murdering people is bad. I don't think that's true, and I don't think that it's morally neutral that Deborah chose the guests, or chooses the guests that she chooses for these events, I think it's morally positive because it's about giving a platform to ideas that need to be heard and to a discourse that's going to be productive and hopefully make humanity better off. On the flip side of that, when a university, for instance, um, <laughs> invites, I don't know, a speaker, we don't need to name names, there's too many names, um, who has a track record of advocating violence against a certain group of people, do you know, maybe that's not morally neutral either. Maybe that's morally wrong, and maybe we should campaign against it. Even Absolutely. though we don't think it should be illegal, we still think it shouldn't be done. The amount of times I had to back off from panels because they invited somebody who thought FGM was okay. Because mm -hmm. you wouldn't invite somebody who thought rape was okay. Mm. Yeah. And they don't realise, oh, no, we need to hear from both sides. And I go, well, let's, let, me cut, let, me, let me do this off your agenda and let's see if that's okay. <laughs> and let's have that conversation then. You know, that, I mean, it's really, uh, seriously, I mean, that always, always happens. It's this idea of 
you know, let's hear it on both sides of the story. Yeah. Mm. And can I give a quote from Desmond Tutu? Because I love Desmond Tutu. He said, um, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> to be morally neutral in situations of oppression is to take the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on a mouse's tail, the mouse will not thank you for your neutrality. Thank you very much. <laughs> Leila, do you have anything to plug? The clinic that I founded, the Dahlia Project, we currently are going to be looking for some funding. So if you just Google Dahlia Project, FGM. How do you, how do you spell it? D-A-H-L-I-A project. Dahlia project. <laughs> Dahlia project and type FGM because there are a couple of ones so just type FGM and there's a donation button. We really, really, this is the only counselling service in Europe for, for FGM survivors. For anti-FGM? For FGM survivors. Oh this is the only counselling service okay, that we go to. Okay, listen, yeah. this podcast is free every single week. Now I understand you people in the room have paid for a ticket but everyone who's listening at home who hasn't paid for a ticket... Can you please put the price of one ticket to, into the Dahlia project? How much Yay. did you pay to come tonight? £12.50. £12. And I understand some people cannot afford that, so please don't feel pressured. But if you can afford £12.50 and you can't come to a Guilty Feminist show and you're listening at home, could you please give it to the Dahlia project? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, if you can't afford £12.50, if you can afford £10, £5, £2.50, please give it. Can someone stand at the door and anyone who wants to put in tonight for the Dahlia Project, we'll give that to Leila. Rubes, watch. You can follow me on Twitter. It's RubesJW. I'm also beginning to do some sort of practical neuroscience for feminism videos on YouTube. So trying to think about how we can have conversations that use the knowledge from neuroscience of understanding how people think and how people have conversations to help us to better have those conversations both in this space but also then when we go out and we face people who we really, really don't like or who we are trying very hard to like. Uh, Carrie? Um, uh, we're all one. Be excellent to each other. Um, have compassion. Be as present as you possibly can and um, you'll be golden with all the faiths that are good in the world. And how can we follow you, a great one? You really don't have to. Just find your own way. Um, <laughs> That's her Twitter handle. She is at... You really don't have to. Find your own way. Follow her now. Uh, and Kate, what can we do for you? Can we come to your church? Can we get an amen? You can, but I feel like that would be kind of self-serving. But you can. Um, I sometimes preach at Northern Lights Metropolitan Community Church in Newcastle-Pontine, and they're lovely, even or especially when I'm not there, depending on how much you've enjoyed this. Um, (laughs) uh, You can find more about MCC, my church, at um, mccchurch.org, and we are global, and we do have all sorts of outreach into countries where it is really, really difficult to be queer at the moment. And particularly, you could look up the Global Justice Institute, which does really good work supporting queer people who are unsafe around the world. At Kate underscore Elizabeth. At Kate underscore Elizabeth. And I'm at Deborah FW. Uh, if you could go to Global Pillage at globalpillage.net and download some episodes and listen to my diversity-based comedy panel show, uh, which is the antidote to all the panel shows you see on the telly that are full of white men, straight white men, <laughs> straight white men without any other diversity... <laughs> 
who also are great. Listen, some of my favourite husbands are straight white men, but <laughs> I'm just saying it's nice to include others. So please go there, download it, and check it out. Uh, follow the Guilty Feminist on Twitter at guiltfempod. Check out our Instagram, instagram.com slash theguiltyfeminist. Like our Facebook page, please. Sign up to our mailing list to get notified as soon as a new episode is released and go to iTunes and rate, review and subscribe five stars because it helps other people to find the podcast. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host, Gary Quitlin, and our very special guests, Ruth J. Walsh, Reverend Kate Harford and Leila Hussein. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinsky for the Sponsored Data Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Meta Sally and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Tom uh, has a phallic-shaped microphone, <laughs> which also could represent a vagina. I'll wear it on my head later, guys. <laughs> Interestingly, he also you. has a microphone-shaped phallus. <laughs> <laughs> this episode's way funnier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, who would like to ask a question? Not there anymore. must be loads. Hi, I'm Sophie Hagen. You may know me from such things as co-hosting episode 1 to 29 of The Guilty Feminist. I'm just here to let you know that I'm on tour of the UK and Denmark with my brand new stand-up show Dead Baby Frog, which is about emotional abuse. My whole tour is anxiety safe. It has gender-neutral toilets and disabled access all around. Go to sophiehagen.com to find out. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com What I mean by that, to find out where I'll be and to get tickets. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. And why not listen to my new project, The Made of Human Podcast. Bye!